Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. We've been keeping up with you. Enjoyed Lane's teaching, and I want to sort of dovetail. Let's go to chapter 14. Lane left off with verse 14 on Sunday, and I want to pick it up in verse 15 as we continue to make our way chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. But before I begin, one of the things that as we get into this portion of the book of Isaiah is that you become sensitive to what I call a double prophecy. What you're going to see as we make our way through the scriptures are things that were foretold by Isaiah and then were filled, in one case we're going to see in a a three and a half year period of time, chapter 15, verse 5 with Moab. It's a fact of history that this happened. But it's going to be in the forefront in the future. And when Lane left off on his study, I was talking to Judy about it, I thought he just knocked it out of the ballpark because he covered it so thoroughly and did such a good job explaining the beginning, the end, and pretty much everything in between on what his tactics are, how he operates, not to be ignorant of his devices. But having said that, what I want you to see as we go through the book of Isaiah On Sunday, we're going to get sidetracked with the first five verses of chapter 16 because it is yet future, and it's going to go back and forth. When Lane gave the study on Isaiah 14 with how Lucifer fell, he also took you to the book of Ezekiel 28. And um, in that one chapter, it begins with, this is a judgment concerning the prince of Tyre. And that's how the chapter begins. And then right in the middle of the chapter, it completely switches. It doesn't tell you it's switching, but it goes from the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre. And all of a sudden, we have a time gap that goes back to the Garden of Eden. It says, you were there in the garden. Um, And he explained Lucifer being around at that particular time. Now, that's one of the things that we want to be sensitive to as we make our way through these chapters tonight. My goal is simple. I want to finish off chapter 14, do 15 and 16, and then have our text on Sunday being um, verses 1 through 5 for an event that is yet future when most of the chapter is about a judgment that we're going to read about that was Isaiah said it's going to happen in three years. So as we go through the scriptures, we want to be sensitive to what we call these double prophecies. And gang, the only way that you're going to grasp this and be able to wrap your head about it is to do it slowly, chapter by chapter, book by book, no fast tracks, no fast way of laboring in the word. And so we go through it carefully. We point out those events. We of all people in the times that we live right now, should be fully equipped, as the Bible says, to give an answer of the hope that we have, this blessed hope. Uh, The rapture of the church is imminent, and it's close. And yet, I like the way Jan Markell put it in one of her newsletters, so the world isn't falling apart. Uh, The world is falling, the pieces are falling together, exactly like the Bible says. These things are supposed to happen exactly as they're happening. So with that much of an introduction, let's go back to where Lane left off on chapter 14, verse 14. I'm going to pick it up. He's 
talking, of course, about Lucifer. And uh, verses uh, oh, 15 through 17, and we'll stop and do a, a quick look back. It talks about his fate. His desire was to ascend and be like the Most High. And yet, that's the word that verse 15 starts with, yet you will be brought down to hell or Sheol, to the lowest part of the pit. And there does seem to be in the scriptures uh, different levels of torment. Jesus talked about uh, some being uh, punished with some stripes and some with more, indicating a degree of judgment once a person passes through to the other side. Yet, you will be brought down to hell, the lowest part of the pit, and those who see you will gaze at you, and and they'll consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? What I want to point out here is conversation that's taking place. And I want you to go back to verse 9 of chapter 14 where we have the same thing taking place. And referring to his judgment, verse 9 says, hell from beneath is excited about you uh, to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They shall all speak and say to you, how have you become as weak as we? How have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sounds of your stringed instruments, intriguing. Um, Again, when you read in Ezekiel, Lane was referring to his pipes, and even music somehow interacting with his creation, with his being. And here it's referred to, again, the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. And then Pastor Lane, for his text, started with verse 12, and that's what he used last Sunday. So the, the whole idea, I'm just going to stop here because I've had a couple of friends just in the last couple of weeks. Um, one we knew was going to go and, and be with the Lord. And that's one thing, because you can sort of prepare yourself for that. And you, you know it's going to happen. And there's that time of preparation where you can prepare yourself somewhat for it. And knowing that this person knows and loves the Lord, um, you know that we sorrow, but not like those who don't have any hope. Uh, it's over for them. They've run, they've run the course. The race is over. And, um, but then there's people like Bruce who he'll call me when there's, when he'll call me just to rub it in because there's a, he says, Dwight, I just want you to know that there's a foot of champagne powder that fell overnight, and I just thought I would call and just tell you that. And that was Bruce. And then we'd fellowship for the next hour. And I'd say, by the way, why'd you call? Because I wanted to talk to you. And that's just the kind of guy who was. And then to hear that I get a text from Lane, and it says, Bruce died last night. And um, then I got the details from Dirk on on how he passed, but we're all in shock. And uh, because that was one that you're not expecting. I want to talk about this a little bit. Um, Famous celebrity died this week, kept it a secret that he had cancer, David Bowie. 
um, well-known, famous musician, my generation, extremely eccentric and extremely gifted and talented. He even um, made a video knowing that he was going to die and in it interlacing the whole story of Lazarus and the resurrection. Uh, but I really don't believe, uh, and God only knows where he was at, but as far as, as, far as you, I would tell from a distance, if I'm a fruit inspector, I'm saying probably not. But I don't know. Um, I pray that, that he is. But uh, David um, Bowie is, is gone. And the thing of it is, he's not gone. Quickly turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 16. And I'm not going to belabor this point. But because this happened to a couple of friends of mine in a very short period of time, I can't help but think about it. I was hiking yesterday in the Superstition Mountains. I usually listen to music. But I had just gotten a word about my friend Bruce, and um, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, do anything else but think about our memories and our times that we spent together. And there's only one place. There's this place at the top of the hill where there's a stool. I no sooner sat down and I looked at my phone, and, and it was Dirk. And we sat and talked and prayed um, for about a half an hour. He was just filling me in. And he said, what are you doing? Do I have some time? And I says, all I'm thinking about is Bruce right now. But here's the reality of it. We're on this side, so we lose a good friend. Well, we didn't lose a good friend. He's, he's home. And I have absolutely no ifs, ands, and buts about what I just said. What I want to drive home scripturally right now is what happens to every soul, lost or found, saved or unsaved, when uh, they no longer are in this body. And so in Luke chapter 16, uh, it's called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. One rule of thumb and in interpretation of the parables, if a proper name is used, it's not a parable, it's a real story. And in this case, we have the name of the poor man, who is Lazarus. Didn't have a whole lot going for him. Um, he was a beggar. But when he died, he was taken to heaven uh, or to paradise. Um, and it was taken, um, it says, by angels to Abraham's bosom. Then we find that the rich man, is all, all of a sudden, he's in Hades. So they both die. But being in Hades, he is conscious and he is aware. He's in torment. He begs for comfort. It can't be given. And Abraham explains to him that there's a gulf fixed between these two chambers that can't be passed. When that reality set in, and here's the point that I'm trying to make, death is only the beginning. A lot of people that um, um, get stressed out for whatever reason and they want to check out because they have no hope, thinking, I'll just finish it and it'll just be done with. Let me just tell you really as clearly as I possibly can, death is only the beginning of eternity. Somebody want to say amen? Death is only the beginning of eternity. And how we spend our time here determines if we're saved Jesus says to the capacity that you used your gifts in serving me, 
um, he will judge accordingly. He said there'll be some wood, hay, and stubble. He did it for wrong reasons. We're told when we're doing something for the Lord, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? Because your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, he wants to reward you openly. And so there will be those um, who will have rewards, according to 1 Corinthians 3 in heaven. On the other hand, you have guys like the rich man here. And he's dead, but he's not dead. His spirit is very much alive, and he's also aware of torment. Once he realizes that that cannot be undone, he has a favor to ask. And that we pick it up in verse 28. He says, you know, I have five brothers. And he says, would you send Lazarus that they may witness, would you use the word witness, would, that you'd witness to them lest they come to this place of torment. Interesting that Abraham said to him, no, they have the prophets and Moses. Let them hear them. That would be like us today saying, no, the Bible, the word of God is out there. And people could either choose to believe it or, or not to believe it. But it's our job to be sowing the seed, be faithful, and just trust the Lord. Just sow the seeds and then just trust the Lord. Say, Lord, I just pray you bless the word, that your word won't return void. A little conversation I had with my boss today about Jesus, I just pray that somehow it got through some way, somehow. And then leave it at that. Pastor Chuck used to have a great saying, do your best, commit the rest. And uh, But at this point, and as we make our way through Isaiah, we have the final fate of Lucifer and the dead being stirred up. Hell is anxious to see him. You were the one that caused all this trouble. You were the one that destroyed all these cities. And now you're no different than we are. And, uh, and they're looking forward to that, that event, which is, by the way, yet history. All right, I think I made my point. When you die, you don't die. You're a spirit. You have a soul. It's eternal. And where your soul and spirit spends eternity is completely made upon a decision of what you've done with the Lord Jesus Christ when you heard the gospel. Did you believe the gospel, that he's able to take your sins and forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and wipe the slate clean? And when you stand before the Father, you'll be declared uh, justified, innocent, just as though you've never sinned, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, you either believe that or you don't. But the implications of it, and the reason that we have uh, scriptures like this, it gives us an opportunity. What does the Bible say about a person that died? Is there any, anything in scriptures that talk about? Oh, yeah. Very conscious and very concerned when they weren't concerned before, when they realized the reality has set in of, of, of the consequences of believing the word of God or not believing the word of God. Well, if I go at this pace, we're not going to even get through 14, so I better keep going. Let's go back to verse 18 through 26. And we're remember now, uh, one of the main things that we're doing is talking about the judgments from chapters 13 to 23 of the surrounding nations. God's going to judge Israel, but now we're talking about judging, in this particular case, Babylon. And picking it up 
in verse 18, it says, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like a garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword. Why go down to the stones, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot? You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be um, named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers. Lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. Interesting. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from them Babylon. All right, we're done talking about Lucifer and his fate. And now we go to the one who is really the creator and the overseer of the first Babylon. In history, there are three. There was the first one, and the one who was over that was a a dictator called Nimrod. And he was a type of Lucifer. I believe he was possessed. And we have that Babylon. And that one was um, thwarped by the Lord when he came down and confounded the language. That's why they call it Babel, Babylon. But that was the first one. This one here is talking about it being judged again. And the offspring and uh, prosperity, says the Lord, I will also make it a, a possession of the porcupine. And marshes of muddy water, I will sweep it like a broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. We're not talking about Babylon, the first one, where Nimrod was. What we now have in view here, Babylon isn't even on the scene yet as far as a world power And Isaiah is talking about his judgment that when he's through with it, it's going to be a place for porcupines. All right, now, what's going to happen is the empire that's um, in power right now is Assyria. Assyria is going to fall in one night. I'm going to take you there in just a bit. But then we're also going to discover that Babylon is going to fall also in one night. Remember the famous writing on the wall, the hand coming out and saying, you've been weighed in the balance and you're going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. And that night, the king of Babylon died. And in one night, Assyria fell. And I'm going to take you to that in just a second. And one night, Babylon fell. But the one that Isaiah is referring to here is the one where um, it won't be inhabited again. Now, there's another Babylon that's coming, and um, I do want to take a little time and talk about the future Babylon, because what we have in this, and this is what I want you to catch as we go through the uh, Isaiah chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Past tense, there was a Babylon that was ruled over by Nimrod. There was another Babylon that Daniel talks about, and the greatest dictator ever known probably to the world, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we had that Babylon. But Daniel clearly told him, he says, you're just part of the link here, and there's going to come somebody after you, the Medes and the Persians. And he didn't care much for that interpretation. So he was defiant until God humbled him. And then we had the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire. And now it's been 2,000 years since those guys have been around. And now we see the stage being set once again. Um, 
things are rocking and rolling all over the place. I just got done reading a little bit of the news bites on what's happening in China and the aftershocks that are happening there and some of the implications that, you know, gang, anything could cause the other shoe to drop to have any nation fall in one night. Somebody want to say amen to that? I mean, it's that, we're that volatile right now as far as our world system. And I think people are aware of it. They know something's going on. They don't know quite for sure what's going on, but we should be different. We should know exactly what's going on. We might not have all the, the jigsaw puzzle pieces put together, but we know what's going to happen. Ezekiel 38 is around the corner, and the stage is set in the Middle East as, as I speak. All right. One Babylon has come and gone, Nimrod. This one is a prophecy, and it says it will be cut off, and it won't be inhabited again. Well, that's eventually what happened to Babylon. Um, oh, come on, Dwight. I warned Joe's up at three this morning. Um, Saddam Hussein, that's his name. He tried to rebuild Babylon. And um, the actual gates of the original Babylon, they restored in a museum, I think, in, in London or Germany someplace. And um, you can see them. But that was never inhabited again. But having said that, the Bible has a whole lot to say about a Babylon that is yet future. So I'm going to have you turn at this point to Revelation chapter 14. Give you a chance to get there. Revelation 14, picking it up at verse 6 is a warning about a Babylon that's going to be rebuilt. Boy, I could get sidetracked here. And um, what I'm going to tell you is my own personal opinion about the rebuilding of Babylon. The Bible clearly declares that it will be the economic center of the world and that it will be judged in one hour. Not just one day, but one hour. But before the judgment comes... We have, and this is some of the weirdest scriptures in, in, the, in the Bible, in Revelation 14, in that we have angels now preaching the gospel. God always leaves a witness. Right now, you're the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. We've been given a commission to take the gospel into all the world. And um, the rapture is imminent. So when we're gone, that restraining force will be taken out of the world. And who does the Lord put in, in place? Two witnesses. I believe Moses and Elijah. Revelation 7, he specially marks and seals 144,000 zealous Jews who will also preach the gospel. And I believe there eventually we find here these 144,000 um, in verse 1. Um, are with their father, I heard a voice in heaven, and they sang a new song. So all of a sudden, they're taken out of the picture. But if God always leaves a witness, what's he going to use now? The two witnesses are dead. The whole world saw them bodily taken up into heaven. And now we have the first part of the 144,000. They're singing this new song, who are redeemed. And now the Lord uses angels to preach the gospel. Let's pick it up in verse 6. I saw another angel having in 
the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached unto all the world, and then the end shall come. With our best evangelical efforts, we're not going to accomplish that. Um, Islam is a lot farther ahead than we are when it comes to having people's mindsets being changed. And um, so I don't believe that the church is going to accomplish that. We call that dominion theology, meaning that we are going to really Christianize the world, the church is. And when we got it all cleaned up and everything's been Christianized, then the Lord's going to come back. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And it's going to get even really bad when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the world. Evil wants to leap forward and do a whole lot more damage than what it's doing right now. Guess who's holding it back? The Holy Spirit. Well, where's the Holy Spirit? I believe it dwells inside of me and dwells inside of you. Good time for an amen. That's going to be removed. And when that's removed, when Jesus said, this gospel will be preached into all the world and then the end will come, this is the only only verse in the Bible I can find that says that. It says an angel is going to preach the gospel to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and every people. You ever heard somebody say, well, what about those pygmies in in, um, wherever, some deserted island in the South Pacific? What about them? Well, this this angel has a gift of explaining it in their language, their lingo. And then that verse from Matthew 24 will be fulfilled. Now, you can disagree with me if you want to, but I can't find another one that that, uh, is as definitive as this one. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment uh, has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right, that's angel number one. Angel number two followed saying, Babylon is fallen. Well, wait a second, it's already fallen with Nimrod. People were scattered on all the earth. Um, 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 Nebuchadnezzar's son, was killed that night when the Medes and Persians taken it. So it couldn't have been that one. So which Babylon is this? Well, it exists, and the Antichrist will be, that will be his headquarters, but it will also be the economic source of the world at this, this given time. Let's read it saying, Babylon has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So here is a warning about that Babylon is falling and it's a great city. Some people have asked the question, do you think the United States of America is Babylon? And I say, absolutely not. Well, how do you know for sure? Because the United States of America is not a city, it's a nation. And what we have in view here is a city. And we have a warning by this angel that is going to fall. Now, I believe it's here already and built. And uh, you've heard me talk on this before. Um, I believe it's Dubai. And there's uh, others, as I search the net, there's more and more people coming to the same conclusion. The first time I got suspicious about Dubai 
is when I heard they were building the tallest building in the world. And it reminded me of the aspirations of the first Babel and wanting to reach the towers of heaven. Well, let's go to that judgment. It's just a couple pages away to Revelation 18. By the time you get to Revelation 18, we're now, it's really 17 and 18, the Battle of Armageddon has already taken place, so it's not chronological. We're going back in detail now is being given. It tells us that this city is fallen, is fallen. So when we get to chapter 18, here the kings, let's pick it up in verse 9, um, is talking about this, uh, the fall of Babylon. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, verse 2, has become a habitation for demons and every foul spirit and cage for every unclean bird and, and hated bird. And uh, we could read the whole chapter, but I want to point out that it's a city and not a country, and it's called Babylon. We read in verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her torment, standing at a distance for fear of the torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Syria fell in one night because of one angel. Babylon fell in one night because of the Medes and the Persians. This one is going to fall in one hour. And um, my guess is because they're standing at a distance, it's obviously a port city because the merchants of the earth and all the ships of sea and all those who are involved with commerce are bemoaning her because now their trading days with this city is over. When you do a little research on Dubai, and I'll only touch on it, it's amazing that it's how long it's been around for. They just, uh, I guess, lost second place to the largest city. But they have the uh, second largest airport in the world, the largest shopping mall in the world, the largest Disneyland in the world. One place that's got the seven wonders of the um, ancient world remodeled there. They're known for uh, trading in human souls. And uh, I could go on and on and on. Um, but what I want, without getting too far offline here, is to point out, here we are, let's go back to Isaiah. And it says that Babylon in verse 22 won't be inhabited again. So the Babylon and Revelation that the angel warns about is going to fall. And then in chapter 18, it's fallen in one hour. This one here was yet future for Isaiah, but it's past tense as far as you and I are concerned. Babylon has never been rebuilt. It is south of Baghdad. Saddam Hussein did everything in his power, stuck millions into it, but it's not rebuilt. And to this day, it's a place that's completely uninhabited. All right. Okay. I think we can finish and hopefully get through chapter 14. Verse 24 through 27 is Assyria. Now remember from chapters 13 to 23, these are all burdens or prophecies that Isaiah is given concerning the, the countries that are around uh, Israel. 
So we read, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely I have thought, so it shall come to pass, as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian, notice, in my land. So the great empire, and let's just go through them, Egypt, um, number one, was the world-dominating empire. Assyria would have been two, followed by Babylon. But Babylon's not on the rise yet. Assyria is the power at this time. But the Lord says, I'm going to judge you guys. And I'm going to do it in my land. I actually have that underlined in my Bible. On my mountains, tread her underfoot. All right, let's read verse 27. I'll come back to that verse. Then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it. And I like this. Who's going to know it? If God has said it's going to happen, who's going to change that from happening? His hand is stretched out. Who's going to turn it back? In other words, if the word of God tells us that this is going to happen, Isaiah says, who's going to stop that from happening? That's going to happen. How many times do we hear Jesus said, this is written, and therefore it must be fulfilled? Then other times he says, I'm going to tell you guys ahead of time so that when it does happen, then you're going to believe, and your faith is actually going to be increased. Who's going to stop what God has said? Well, what has he said is he going to do with the Assyrians? Well, he says, I'm going to break them. Well, how's he going to do that? And where is he going to do that? Well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 37. Remember, this is a prophecy. Hezekiah is all freaked out because Sennacherib is the king of Assyria The Assyrians were just as brutal as what ISIS is today, and they were greatly feared. When we go to Israel, one of the things that we take our group sewers called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Hezekiah had this tunnel made because the Assyrians were laying siege against the city of Jerusalem. And he is fearful of their brutality. And so, and Chapter 37, he prays, uh, let's pick it up, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord which has spoken concerning him. Now the Lord has already given this as a judgment back in chapter 14. He said it was going to happen. He said it was going to happen in their land of Uh, Israel, that he would break them. And basically, I won't read all of it, but he's saying to Hezekiah, don't worry about it. Not not one arrow is going to come into this wall. And and yet, they're surrounded by the complete uh, Assyrian army. So, verse 33, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, his name is Sennacherib, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, that'll be the way he'll return. 
He shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Verse 36. Interesting thing is, we study the scriptures together, that these world empires came and went in a single day. A single day, an event happened and everything changes. Well, this is what event happened. And when it says in Isaiah 14 that it's going to happen, I'm going to break them in my land. Imagine the city of Jerusalem being completely surrounded and laid siege to the point that he has to build Hezekiah's tunnel for a water supply. And um, Isaiah is telling Hezekiah, don't worry about it. Verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Syrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were all the corpses, they were all dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Israel, departed. That's exactly what he said he was going to do. But he's, he's going by himself, his army isn't. That was the end of the Assyrian Empire in the beginning of the Babylonian. And so Sennacherib departed, went away, returned home, went to Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that one of his two sons struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esher-Herdon, his son, reigned in his place. He had the end of the Assyrian Empire. Let's go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 25. I will break the Assyrian in my land on my mountains, treading under their foot. How did the Lord pull it off? With one angel, taking on 185,000 in one night. All right, let's pick it up at verse 28. Now we have the burden or judgment that came in the year that King Ahaz died. As I was studying this today, if you go back to Second Kings 16, verse 20, it tells us the life of Ahaz, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And um, that's Second Kings 16, verse 20. And I'll just read this and come back on comment of verse 29. It says, Do not rejoice, O you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's root will come forth a viper, and his offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will be fed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnants. Wail, O gates, cry, O city. All you Philistia are dissolved, for smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed time. What will then answer the message of the nations that the Lord has founded Zion. And the people, and the poor of his people, shall take refuge into it. It says, in the year that King Ahaz died. Um, when you study this and you go back, there's this comment about um, uh, their sort of rejoicing all you of Philistia because the rod that struck you is is broken. And we find here that 
I'll just read what McGee has to say on that. He says, two more good kings ruled after Ahaz, but the worst kings are not are yet to come. The people are to understand that just the rule of man will not bring about improvements in the world, how timely this is, especially after last night. In this country, we seem to feel that if we change presidents or parties, there's going to be an improvement. We have done that, and there's been no improvement. God tells Palestine, Palestinians, or Philistines, not to rejoice just because Ahaz is dead. Things are not going to get any better at all. Before the kingdom blessings prevail, there will be severe judgment of God upon that land. It will be more severe than that of the surrounding nations because this nation had light, and light creates responsibility. Isaiah is looking into the future when there will be the re- uh, will be the great tribulation period and the Antichrist rule. There are those who do not feel that the burden mentioned here is much of a burden because it's called a burden, and it's about uh, uh, Palestine. And the Palestine is quite interesting. It refers to those who gave the name to the land, the Philistines. They had come up the coast of Egypt. They sort of slipped into the land. Uh they were there when Israel arrived. Apparently, the Philistines had not been in the land during the days of Abraham because the Canaanites were there in the land. But when the children of Israel returned from their 400 years of captivity, the Philistines then were in the land, and they had occupied five major cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, I can't remember the other two, uh, they were to be destroyed, and it was literally fulfilled in verses 30 and 32, describes the judgment in detail, and it is fierce. So as we got through 14, we've dealt with the judgments of Lucifer, um, the judgment of Babylon, past, present, and what's going to happen in the future. What happened to Assyria in one night, and then what happened in these last verses, to the surrounding nation called Philistia. All right, let's dive into 15, and I'm just going to read it and come back and comment on it. The burden against Moab. Because in the night, Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, Ker of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to his temple, indicted to the high place to weep. Moab and wail over Nebo and over Mediba. Now, Nebo, that's the same mountain. Uh, when we were down by the Dead Sea this last November, I was pointing out to our group as we were getting close to the northern tip of the Dead Sea, I pointed it out. I said, that right over there is Mount Nebo. That's where Moses was able to look into the land, but he wasn't able to enter into it. So Nebo is in Moab, but it's also um, the setting for the book of Ruth. Remember Naomi? No bread in Bethlehem? So where do they go? They go to Moab, run into a couple of Moabite girls. Ruth comes home. And a beautiful love story with Boaz and Ruth, but she was a Moabitess, and uh, she did not worship the gods 
the God of Israel, but she had her own gods. And um, when she had to choose between staying in Moab or returning with Naomi, she said, forbid me not to depart from me. Wherever you go, I will go. Your gods will be my God. And um, where you live, that's where I want to live. So we have this beautiful story. But again, the setting was there in, in Moab. But here we're talking about that it's going to be swept clean in verse 2. Um, Moab will wail. Um, uh, verse 3, in the streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth and atop of their houses and in their streets. Everyone will wail bitterly. Heshbon and Elah will cry out. Their voices will be heard as far as Jahaz. And therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. My heart will cry out for Moab. Now this is Israel speaking here in verse 5. His fugitives flee to Zor. Like a three-year-old heifer, for by the ascent of Luhath, they will go up weeping. For in the way of Horanim, they will rise up a cry of destruction. For the waters of uh, Nimrim will be desolate. The green grass will wither away. The grass fails. There's nothing green. And therefore, the abundance they have gained. And what they have laid up, they will carry away by the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab, its wailing to Iglam, and its wailing to Bear Elam, for the waters of Dimon will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Dimon, lions upon him who escaped from Moab, and of the remnant of Israel. What we have in chapter 15 is this prophecy against uh, Moab. It is severe. Uh, It says it's going to be swept clean. Um, The burden of Moab came very suddenly. This expression is actually repeated twice, and it sort of emphasizes the suddenness of the storm which struck the nation. The storm came at night, and their night of weeping never ended. And the force behind this Assyria destroyed this nation in a way that is unbelievable and almost unspeakable. We're talking ISIS-type elimination. Kind of what we're seeing in Syria is what happened to Moab. What's interesting about this is sympathy, because it was so severe. Um, You know, we all grieved when we saw the terror attacks in Paris. Our hearts went out to the people. And we're a little ticked off tonight because of of our sailors being taken in by Iranians. And uh, we don't think much of that. What's happening in verse 5 here is there's actually sympathy for Moab from Israel's perspective because of the severity of the judgment that caused such weeping and mourning that they felt sorry for. You know, I've never felt sorry for the Minnesota Vikings in my entire life. Never. I've never felt sorry for them. 
But I have to admit, my heart went out to that guy who pulled it to the left. And I, you know, don't want them to win. But was I the only one? Didn't you have a little empathy for this guy? I got, this guy's going to live with this the rest of his entire life. And um, that's the only thing I could think of to express sympathy when it's against your enemy. Moab is enemies, but they were so severely destroyed by the Assyrians that their sympathy, my heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zorro like a three-year-old heifer. And it, it gives a time frame here. Speaking of time, I need to move on. This was literally fulfilled in history. And um, you can just check this one off. Uh, as it was foretold by Isaiah chapter 16. I don't know if we'll get through all of it, but uh, I want to give you enough to get you interested in what I see on the horizon and um, prophecies unfolding. First five verses. Send the, the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughters of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of its nest. So shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Uh, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. All right? In mercy the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. And I'm going to stop with verse 5 because... We began the study tonight with the way I want to end it, with Elaine leaving off with past, present, and future with um, Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. But then it switches gears completely and talks about the judgment of Assyria and how it fell. And we have two different things, and the time gap here goes back to the Garden of Eden as Elaine so well connected the dots when he took you to Ezekiel and explained in one chapter you could be talking about the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre, but they're two different entities altogether. And one of them goes back to the Garden of Eden. Certainly the prince of Tyre was a man who was a ruler over Tyre, but then it talks about the, uh, the power behind the king himself being Lucifer himself. Now, as we look at chapter 16, we have, again, go to verse 6, the pride of Moab. I believe this is where we switch gears again, between verse 5 and verse 6. The first five verses, um, let me, as we tie this up together, and just sort of a teaser and keep us somewhat on time. Let's go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11. Selah, Petra, Moab, Moab, Ammon, and Edom. 
These are all mentioned in judgment in Isaiah. And yet, when we get to Daniel chapter 11, they're mentioned again. And, uh, but it's in the context of now the Antichrist coming against God's chosen people. Now, this is where we're headed. This is yet future. But, uh, and this is a great chapter, too, because we have two kings here. One is called the willful king, and that begins in verse 36. That's future. It's in reference to the Antichrist. And um, the other one, uh, the first part of it is not dealing with that at all. So there's a gap between verses 35 and 36. And this is where we're going to go on Sunday in quite a, quite a bit of detail. But notice in verse 41. Uh, let's go back to verse 40. It says, at the time of the end. So now we know we're talking about future. The king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a world with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. And they will enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. And he shall also enter the glorious land, that would be Israel. And many countries will be overthrown. But these will escape from his hand. This is interesting. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Ammon. I've flown into Ammon. On Ammon Royal Air planes on one of our trips because it was the cheapest ticket at the time. It was sort of weird. They were very envious, and they were sort of spiteful to us because when they said, where are you going? Well, we landed here, but we're going to Israel. Who did that tick them off? They didn't like that at all. And yet it's interesting that the very chapters that we're studying that past tense have been judged we're now future. All of these, and on Sunday I'll actually put up a map. Ammon and Moab and Edom, if you put them on a map today, what you have is Jordan. That's what Jordan is. Ancient Edom, Moab, and Adam. And this is going to be a place of uh, that the Antichrist won't be able to get his hands on. Now I'm hoping you're picking up where I'm going with this. Because Let's go back to um, chapter 16. And rather than finish this out, because from verses 6 through the rest of this chapter is again the judgment and the pride. In verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He's very proud, haughty, in his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone will wail. So again, now we're switching gears and talking about something that had happened past tense in history where, um, again, uh, Assyria wiped, wiped him clean so much so that Israel actually felt sorry for him. But what we have here is Selah is actually um, Petra. It's in the land of Jordan. And on Sunday... I'm going to take you to Petra and um, give you the chronological order of the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Jesus Christ, Isaiah uh, chapter 63, where we get the battle hymn of the Republic, and why it was written, and uh, what it had in view there, 
the battle that takes place in Edom. Who is this who is coming out of Basra? Well, where's Basra? Jordan today. Revelation chapter 12 clearly tells us that they will be um, escaping to this place where they'll be supernaturally protected. And here in um, uh, Daniel chapter 11, we're told that the land of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, modern-day Jordan, he doesn't have access to them. So again, the Bible has all these pieces that our goal on Sunday is to put them all together. Let me just close with a, um, a comment from McGee where he says, when God deals with the nations that have to do with Israel, he uses a calendar. He never uses a calendar with the church. Within three years, the Moabites were to be destroyed, and within three years, God used Assyria to destroy this nation. So here he talks about it being a three-year time. Well, three years later, it was a done deal, and they, they were destroyed. It was a judgment of God because of their pride. So let's recap. We are in those chapters between chapter, let's go back to my first page here, 13 through 23, where we're dealing with the judgment of the surrounding nations, and um, but intertwined and what's meaningful for us is to see that without exception, we have double prophecies in each one of them. And um, what we have currently rising on the scene today is the Lord laying the groundwork for the be beginning of uh, the great tribulation period. And it's in the middle of um, the great tribulation period that we will look more fully into the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 16, because that is also yet future tense. Got your curiosity up for that? Good. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, this is a lot to take in. What strikes me the most of our study tonight is that if you've purposed it, who's going to stop it? And Lord, if you say that these things are going to happen and you're actually going to talk to Moab in the future to hide the outcast when the Antichrist does come against Israel and you actually ask Jordan to be the place to protect them, to protect the outcast from the spoiler or the Antichrist. Lord, as we simply study your word, I just pray that it would would uh, make common sense to us that as we see these things foretold, there's nothing that can undo them from happening. And Lord, it just gives us sort of a stability in life. When we turn on the TV tonight and see the craziness with the stock market and all the instability there, that we have a solid rock on which to lay our foundation. And Lord, you said the wise man would build his house upon that solid rock so that when the storms of life do come, that we won't fall. It won't shake us. It's not falling apart, it's falling together. And we understand that, Lord, having a biblical perspective. And we're grateful for it. We don't take it for granted. Bless your people, Lord, as we go out tonight. Bless our fellowship. Prepare our hearts for Sunday as we get into this a little deeper. Promise to give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.